snarky. Incredibly satisfying, though. Small bit of trivia about me. I'm mildly scared of horses. Welcome to the DL Presents Babylon Berlin. This is a deep dive companion podcast to the German television series Babylon Berlin. I'm your host, Dan Fenner, and joined as always by a woman who will wake up at dawn to dress and drag and kill her lover, the very lovely Leslie Leak. Oh, hello. Each episode of the podcast will cover one episode of the show. We'll give you the down low on the plot, characters, and history. But be warned, The DL Presents is not for the language of mind or the young in age. This podcast and the media that it covers is BAFA. By adults for adults. But if you're ready to powder your nose, spike your lemonade, and try your hand at some blackmail porn, then you're ready for the DL. So don your later hosen and drink your libations. Drag queen lighting. And dunkle lager. Let's dive in. Pew! Leslie, I am fucking thrilled to talk about episode five. I recently rewatched it in preparation for this episode, as I always do, and there's so much going on. It's hot and heavy. I cannot wait, but we have some business to discuss first. Let's get down to business. (laughs) We have some personal stuff to discuss at the top of the show for episode five. We have been out of the studio on hiatus for about two months. There's just been too much going on in our personal lives. And to give you a little bit of a preview of that, we've both been out of the country for different reasons separately during that time. And I have a bit of an announcement to make on the air. But Leslie, why don't you go first? What have you been up to for the last two months? It's been exciting stuff. I learned how to brew kombucha. Yeah, that's gross. I hate hate that stuff. Also, it should be announced first and foremost that Dan despises vinegar and vinegar related substances. It is my kryptonite. Okay, but in all seriousness, I did go to Costa Rica. It was a great time, but I think the real spotlight here needs to be shined on. Well, wait, why were you in Costa Rica? What were you doing there? I was leading a yoga retreat. Leading a yoga retreat? (laughs) This girl's over here living every woman's dream, baby. It really was amazing. I met some cool people. Shout out to everybody, because I know you're listening. (laughs) Those of you listening don't know that about Leslie, but she is an influencer. (laughs) Yes. Oh, yeah. Dan, tell us where you've been, what you've been up to. We started our hiatus from recording because I was very busy and stressed out planning a wedding. Bum, bum, ba, bum. But yeah, my wife and I got married. We had been together for about six years. We had bought a house together. We did it kind of all in reverse. And so, yeah, we got married in Western North Carolina. It was beautiful. Leslie was there with I her live-in there. lover, Cam. It was truly lovely. It was amazing. I I would do it again if I had the chance, that's for sure. And then then my wife and I traveled to Germany. We went from Frankfurt to Heidelberg to northern Bavaria and did a little rock climbing and spent the last four days in Berlin and then flew home and were extremely tired. And now we're excited to be back in the studio. This episode of the DL Presents Babylon Berlin will be structured just like every previous episode, a three-parter, starting with the plot synopsis of episode five, followed by the history and context pertaining to this episode, and rounding it out with Leckerbissen, which I found out, well, in Germany, lecker means delicious, and Bissen is like morsel, so like delicious morsels. Very appropriate. Yeah, it's like as close to tidbits a translation can come. Having known no German when you came up with that, well done. Yeah, uh, caveat, ich sprechen kein Deutsch. (gasps) 
Oh, I love it. That phrase came in handy all the time. <laughs> I really am impressed. We went from knowing no German to one of us knowing four words. <laughs> We're still going to mispronounce stuff. I found out that the Spree River that runs through Berlin is perhaps actually pronounced spray. Yeah, I told you that. Sorry, folks. <laughs> So, Dan, what are your thoughts on episode five, The Quick and Dirty? I love that episode five goes deep into some other plot lines, namely Greta, who showed up just last episode and is an old summer camp friend of Charlotte's. I'm glad that we are starting to flesh out who she is and why she's there and what she's up to. So I guess it's it's an unbalanced episode because some characters get a lot of screen time, but I like that because I wanted to see those characters. I wanted to see those relationships more. I was able to connect a lot of dots after re-watching episode five. The directors are laying down some tiny little breadcrumbs that are going to come full circle and be very important so pay attention. My last word on the topic is Yucatan. Wait Dan do you hear those drums? Do you know what that means? Does it mean it's time to wrap ourselves in feather boas and sequins with long stem cigarettes and dance the night away? Well not quite but it does mean it's time to fall backwards out of a five story window and deep into the plot synopsis of episode five. Excuse me. There's a lot of burps on this podcast. (laughs) For those of you listening, I edit out the burps, but there's a fuck ton of them. (laughs) Episode five actually has one burp in the show. Liv Lisa Freeze, the actress that plays Charlotte, has a little burp. Yeah, we'll get to that. Even though back in the day, there was way more formality about relationships and everything. Was there? I feel like we're always told that, but is it true? Well, I feel like there there were all these like etiquette rules, but one of them was definitely not like don't fart or burp in public. Because I feel like that's the thing you see all the time in like shows like Babylon Berlin. If don't fart or burp in public were enforced, everyone would be in jail. (laughs) Mainly... <laughs> Mostly Bruno. All right. Cold open. Okay. Episode five. Plot synopsis, episode five. The plot synopsis of episode five starts with a big sip of red wine. Let's make it noisy. Cheers. So the cold open to episode five comes in with a child walking through his house in his pajamas at night. We find out he's entering his parents' bedroom and he picks up his father's gun. Which apparently is a loaded gun. Yeah, just laying around, as people do, apparently, way too often. I love the dad's reaction when he wakes up to find the son. And the son is just, like, playing. Yeah, totally playing. Just playing around. The father initially is like, oh my god, wake up. Like, to his wife, wake up, you you won't believe. Look how cute this is. Look at this cute (laughs) scenario. He's playing with my gun. And the wife is like, no, get that away from him. And the dad's like... Okay, I guess so. He says something like, oh, he's a he's a big boy now. He knows how to use it. Yeah, he literally says he knows how to use it. Well, what do you know? The moment this scene started playing the first time I watched the show, I knew how it was going to end. I was, I was just about to ask you that. Like, as soon as you see that creepy child just walking silently through his parents' bedroom, do you, it, yeah, it screams something bad is happening. Maybe German viewers were surprised by the fact that, surprise, surprise, the little boy shoots his father quite accidentally. But I live in the United States of America in the 21st century, and that is all too real. I knew exactly where this scene was going. Little PSA for the DL Presents. Never keep a loaded gun in the house with your toddler. Yeah, man. We will get back to that poor and unfortunate father. 
because the camera cuts immediately as the gunshot goes off. So we don't know his fate at the beginning of the episode, Mm -hmm. but he will certainly be back. The second part of the cold open has a little gunplay as well. The camera cuts to birds flying off at the sound of the gun and Kartikov startling awake in Svetlana's apartment. My man Kartikov, waking up from a night of sex with his sweet, sweet Svetlana. (laughs) There's this saying like, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. My dude Kartikov, shame, shame. (laughs) (laughs) I find this scene hysterical in like a very inappropriate way. So what Leslie's alluding to here is the fact that Kartikov wakes up to find out that Svetlana has gotten up already, fully dressed up as her character, Nikoros, because she knows that henchmen from the Russian embassy are on their way over to assassinate Kartikov as he is just waking up into the day. The best line from this is when Kartikov attempts, you know, in in good faith, to get Svetlana away from the front door because he knows these assassins are coming and he says, they'll shoot us right away, please come with me. She turns to him and is like, you, not me. Like, they're coming for you, baby. So Kartikov runs up the back stairs of the apartment, the service stairway, as he's being pursued by these two gunmen. He picks up a bottle of milk that apparently had been delivered even earlier than Svetlana got up and smashes one of the henchmen over the head with it. He puts his hand up to defend himself from the milk bottle, but gets a big bloody gash in it as the two henchmen chase Kartikov up to the, I guess, the attic. Yeah, so Kartikov gets himself trapped in the attic with nowhere to go. Luckily, the two Russian henchmen are kind of dim, and they kind of lose his trail, but not Svetlana. She's on it. Yeah, Kartikov has barred the door with some furniture from the service stairs to come up to the attic. Svetlana has the key to some sort of wrought iron gate that allows you to walk in into the attic. She walks right up to Kartikov and shoots him at close range, knocking him out of the window. And we see a beautiful shot where the camera cuts to the water down below the window. And you see via the reflection on the dirty water as Kartikov's body comes hurtling down into it. Yeah, and then the scene ends with just the book that happened to be in Kartikov's pocket just floating by his body. There's a circle wipe, which is a convention of the show. Every time the cold open ends, they do this nice hearkening back to an old older age of film where the whole scene blackens into a circle and just before that circle closes on Kartikov's hand you see that it moves just a little because our man Kartikov has yet another act to play. He's a kitty cat. He has nine lives. He is a Rasputin. He cannot be killed. Oh yeah good parallel. So right after Kartikov's big tumble the credits roll. And I just wanted to say one thing about this second part of the cold open. When we think back to episode two in that series of scenes where Svetlana is performing as Nika Rose on the stage while simultaneously the Soviet embassy is infiltrating the Red Fortress and killing everybody, you see Svetlana like really struggling to keep it together. She's like getting very teary-eyed knowing that she's just betrayed all those people and she's fairly emotional about it. And then fast forward to episode five, she shoots Kartikov at close range in the chest. No more emotion. I think she ran out of sympathy for him when he came back to her place and was laying in wait to potentially kill her because he knew she had betrayed him and she, by her wits and... Tits. Wits and tits, you're right. (laughs) Seduces him and is able to convince him that she's still on his side and has to sleep with him one more time. I can see how that would change your mind. You know what I mean? You have a little sympathy when It all happened too fast and you never had a chance to say goodbye. But after Kartikov had overstayed his welcome by even just one night, I can see how that would turn to just a vile hatred. 
Well, I almost think it's like more like a level deeper than that because she was going to get away kind of like cowardly the first time around. She didn't have to be there. You're and right. She, she got didn't to have leave. To face him. She got to leave knowing that she would never see him again. And it was sad for her in a way. But, you know, cowards out. And then he shows up at her apartment and he's got she's got to look him in the face again. I feel like you got to turn cold. One last note. She fucking looks good as Nikros. She looks better as Nikros than I've seen her in the show so far as Svetlana. Yeah. It's a sharp look and that black coat that she's wearing as she walks out into the street with the gun still in hand after shooting Kartikov out of the window. It's like the sleeves are beautifully embroidered. It's clearly her her coat for being on stage, but it's just gorgeous. It's a sharp look. Yeah, shout out to Marlena Dietrich. Yeah, for sure. After the credits, the scene opens on a beautiful bridge in Berlin that actually myself and my wife walked over when we were in Berlin. It's the Oberbaum Bridge that connects Friedrichshain and Kreuzberg or Friedrichshain-Kreuzberg, the two neighborhoods nowadays have been combined, that in 1929 they would have been separate neighborhoods and we see a train moving along that gothic brick bridge. Greta's on board the train and she's coming into town for the day and almost gets robbed. I feel like this is just another way of telling the audience that Greta is living on the very edge of destitution. She is trying to catch a nap on the train into town and a deranged, almost drunk-seeming man tries to grab her luggage from her. The weird part is that when she wrestles it back from him, another woman in the train car says in the subtitles for the German version, like, fine, then get out of here. And it's like, why are you mad at Greta? She didn't do anything. I guess the takeaway is that it sucks to be poor in 1929, just like it does now. It does. So Greta's on her way to meet up with Charlotte at the Mocha FD Cafe, where Charlotte is going to potentially get Greta a job on that little side hustle of hers. Being a prostitute. I love that we get to see the Mocha FD Cafe in a new light. We see it in the morning. And oh, baby, she was made up and glitzy and glamorous in the evening. But when you see her wake up with bedhead, Namoka Efti is dirty. I like that you see people like pushing brooms around, sweeping up the gold confetti on the floor. And there's still men drunk and passed out, like sitting in chairs. Anyone who's ever worked at a bar or even just had to clean up a big party, this is a familiar scene. Yeah, yeah. But Greta and Charlotte are headed down into the brothel basement. It stood out to me that the madam was there at like 9 a.m. doing the books. One thing I'll point out about the madam is that she has a very fun dangly spider earring in her left ear that is visible as she checks out Greta to see if Greta's got what it takes, including, of course, the required tooth check and breast check. Got all the teeth? Good. Seems like Greta passes the visual check and they are ushered back into the bowels of the Mocha FD to definitely get Greta a shower and a change costume. Yeah, there's actually a lot of funny stuff that happens here. In fact, before Charlotte and Greta ever even go into the Mocha FD cafe, they kind of meet up on the sidewalk outside and, you know, say hello to each other. And (laughs) Charlotte asks Greta if she slept, which just tickles me because we know for a fact that Charlotte didn't sleep the night before and probably hasn't slept for like the past three and a half weeks. And based on Greta falling asleep on the train, she probably didn't either. No, yep. Two tired gals. The madam just calls Greta out for being smelly, the poor thing. Yeah, she she looks at Greta's teeth and then she opens Greta's coat and looks at her chest and she's like, 
Yeah, I like what I see. Definitely get this girl a shower. Either way, Charlotte and Greta go back into the Mocha FD to pull some outfits for Greta to, I assume, audition for this position. And we find out that Greta has another secret that she's been keeping. She pulls down her underwear to reveal her lower abdomen and she has a large gruesome looking scar. I I think it's clear upon watching more of the story in a few more episodes that this is a C-section. She has very recently had a child and she is not at all interested nor able to be a prostitute. Yeah, and I what what I'm curious about is like Greta obviously did not know that that was the job that Charlotte was like arranging for her to have, right? Yeah, I think in the previous episode when Charlotte is like, I, you know, look, meet me, we've got something for you. There's no way Greta could have known, but I think once they're down into the basement and she finally has to take off her clothes in front of Charlotte, she realizes there's no point in keeping the secret anymore. It's it's a painful secret. She may have wanted to share it with somebody at this point, but it just seems like the issue was forced she had to come forward and just say like look I I can't do what you're telling me I should do yeah not only like I'm getting the the vibe that she doesn't really want to it's not her cup of tea not her bag but also her scar is recent and inflamed so from like a physical standpoint she couldn't do it yeah the moment that Charlotte sees the scar she realizes that the the kind of sex work aspect is off the table and she just is concerned for another woman yeah she doesn't ask questions Other than, you know, is it inflamed? I think she handles it like a champ, actually. I remember mentally noting that Charlotte's a damn good friend. Yeah, she immediately shifts gears and offers comfort. And yeah, Greta's upset because, like, Charlotte was potentially going to get her a job and it's not going to work out. And Charlotte says, don't worry, we'll find you something. One last note about this scene is I really like Charlotte's approach to sex work in this first season of Babylon Berlin. It is not something that she bemoans. Mm -mm. She's not terribly upset at the prospect of doing it, though clearly she would prefer other employment because she's trying her damnedest to be working for the police legitimately. But she doesn't seem to make it a big drama, and I feel like that would never be done in an American show. If you were watching an American television show and a young woman was scrounging by on sex work, that would be the central focus of the show, and it would also be the central focus of her woe. Yeah, yeah. Charlotte's like, hey, I mean, you get to choose the guys, kind of. If you don't like someone, you just rebuff them. And yeah. you can make three marks per visit, as she says it. Yeah, and I I was very curious about three marks because then Charlotte goes on to say, you can have your own apartment by the end of the week. And I was like, wow, three marks? That must be a lot of money. Now, I think this might be a discrepancy between the English language dubbed version of the Netflix show and the German language original. Because in the German version, the subtitles are, you'll be able to have a room by tomorrow. And my wife Leah pointed out that might mean you could have a room here at the Mocha FD by tomorrow starting to make three marks per visit, which is a little bit different Mm -hmm. than the English language dubbed interpretation, which is with that kind of money, you'll be able to get a room for yourself like an apartment in no time. It's hard to say what the original writers really meant because there's that small difference of words but it means so much. Leah, right on. Okay, I'm glad that that perspective is presented because that could absolutely be right, and that would make way more sense because I did just a little bit of research and found that in 1929, one mark would have been about 25 cents. So three marks would have been about 75 cents, which in today's money is only $16. So I was really confused because then Charlotte goes on to say you could have yourself a room in no time, essentially. It might be the case that you could rent an apartment in Berlin in 1929 
$29.99 for a little over $16. I don't know, but it is wild to see the enormous difference in property value in less than 100 years because I don't want to talk about how much I've paid for rent on the air in terms of actual dollar figures, but a lot. Where Leslie and I live is not cheap. No, it ain't. Charlotte and Greta are meeting up at the Mocha FD Cafe before Charlotte's workday even begins, which cracks me up. My girl does not sleep. So after this meeting with Greta at the Mocha FD Cafe, she goes to work at the police headquarters. The first thing Charlotte does at police headquarters is go back to the men's room where she found Garion in episode two. She uses some tweezers to get the little vial of medicine, the drugs that she dropped down in a side of a wooden panel. She fishes it out of the wall, puts it into an evidence bag. This is Charlotte doing the dirty work for Bruno. She goes up to Bruno's office to give it to him and walks in on Sweet Sweet Stefan looking caught red-handed doing something. We know he was, or we see him rifling through Bruno's desk and he spills a little bit of ink and then Charlotte walks in and he's startled. She calls him out like, what are you doing here? And he's like, well, I mean, I do work for Bruno Walter. When I first saw this episode, I didn't connect the dots that he was going through his boss's desk without Bruno's knowledge. Right. He knocked over that ink, which is an amateur mistake, but when I first saw the episode, I just thought, oh yeah, he's like young and clumsy. We could all have this happen. But he is in a life and death situation. He finds the Lignos, the gun, the small caliber gun that Bruno took from Franz Krajewski in the very first episode. That gun is deep in a drawer in Bruno's desk, and Stefan knows that's not his official service weapon. So when Charlotte comes in and is, you know, that's a big crush for Stefan. Yeah. When Charlotte comes in. That would fluster him no matter what. Yeah. When he was so flustered, I just thought it was because of the crush. But now having watched the show multiple times, I realize it's because he is in a super dire situation. And he had to have thought that it was Bruno Walter himself coming through the door about to catch him red handed with his desk drawer open. Yep. Exactly. But luckily, it's Charlotte. It's just Charlotte. She does give him a little grief for, you know, rifling through Bruno's desk and he gives his excuse but ultimately they have a little flirtation she asks if they're still going swimming the next day yeah is your offer still valid swimming tomorrow at the lake and stefan says yes it's a date it's funny because charlotte has also been caught doing some clandestine activity she doesn't want to tell stefan why she's there because she is working on the sly for bruno spying on gary yeah stefan doesn't want to tell charlotte why he's there because he's working for counselor bendo working on the sly spying on bruno yes while stefan and charlotte are setting their date plans raf and graf are in the photo lab trying to make sense of this little film clip. The enlarged photo cell shows in a little more detail what we were able to see in the early episodes of this season. It's the room with Muti from Wedding and another woman that can't be identified, the man whose face is scratched out but whose dick is definitely on display, and interestingly, the painting of a horse. And I, I think it's hard to see with enough detail, but I think the horse has a gas mask on in the painting. I didn't pick up on that, but yeah, could be. We learned some important things in this scene. First, Graf has done some detective work of his own and found out that this particular film cell would have been produced, would have been, you know, made into a positive from the original negative at a particular film lab in Berlin. So he's able to give Garion that lead. We also learn that Garion seems to recognize the horse, strangely enough, that's in this little film clipping. He walks right up to the projected image of it on the wall and says, Yucatan. 
We find out later in this particular episode that that's the name of his brother's World War I-era horse. Yeah, perplexing at the time. Also, just to clarify, on a previous episode, we debated and went back and forth about whether or not the man in this photo from the porn film had his dick out or not. It was hard to see. And whether it was in a chastity belt or what, because it's definitely caught up in some device. Fast forward and pause at 12 minutes, 15 seconds, and tell us what you think. It looks like a big old penis to me. It's definitely a penis, but what is that penis involved in? Please email us at the dlpresents at gmail.com. We would love to know your thoughts. We've looked at this for a long time, and it's hard to make heads or tails of what that dick be doing. It's a not-so-chastity belt. I'm not familiar with them myself. If you have personal experience, feel free to share. On the film clipping on the far right-hand side, you can see the word rotacor written on it. That's how Graf is able to identify what film lab this was developed in. He says that it's made of cheap material that would have been produced in Yugoslavia, and that the only film lab in town known to use that kind of film sometimes is called Geyer, which is a real film lab in Berlin at the time. It would have been a a massive film production. And the opening shot of the next scene where you see Garion going to that film lab, you see the name Geyer printed on the top of it. Sorry, it's not the next scene, but in the scene where you see Gary and go to that part of town to investigate the film lab. In the next scene, we see Gary at his desk, and he makes a phone call to Cologne to the mysterious Helga. He talks on the phone with Helga and lies a little bit, says that he had a strange dream about his brother Anno, but actually the dream is about his horse, Anno's horse. And Helga confirms for us, the viewer, that the horse's name is Yucatan. Garion refers to it as a trackner horse, which is like a breed specific to East Prussia, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I specific thought. breed. Interesting. The other thing about this scene that I didn't notice on first watch, but on second watch, is that as the camera is in Helga's space in Cologne, we don't see Helga's face, but the camera pans across a few photos. She has a photograph of both Garion and presumably his brother in World War I regalia and uniform uniform, army uniform, and it also pans over a photo of the horse, presumably Yucatan, which can't be perfectly matched with the painting we see or the photo that we see in the porn film, but there's definitely a connection there the directors are giving you a breadcrumb for, and when I first watched the show, I didn't pick it up, but I think it's important to mention it now because that scene happened so fast. Yeah, there's a lot of breadcrumbs laid in this particular scene, and I don't want to go into them in too much detail because they could possibly have some major spoilers if if uh, you listeners are very astute. <laughs> the last part of Garion's phone call with Helga that I want to mention is that Garion floats the idea of Helga just dropping whatever's going on in her life and moving to Berlin to be with him. He seems to really have a deep connection to this woman, though we don't yet know why. When he floats the idea, he and Helga both are kind of like, oh, that would be nice, right? That's a hypothetical situation. And Helga even says that common phrase we've seen elsewhere in the show, everyone wants in Berlin, and Garion repeats it. But even in like the tone of the voice, you get that neither of them are actually serious about making that happen. Or it isn't realistic for reasons we don't understand. Right. Before Garion's conversation with Helga can go any further, Bruno Walter comes in to interrupt the phone call. Garion says he has to go, and Bruno's got a statement that apparently he wrote up, a statement from both him and Garion, saying that demonstrators at the May Day protests 
shot at them. Now, of course, Gary knows this isn't true. Bruno says, hey, you can change the wording a little bit. You know, I'm not an author. I'm not a poet. <laughs> I'm not that. good with words. You can write it in your own phrasing. But the thrust of the report is that they, as officers for the Berlin police, were shot at by demonstrators. Thus necessitating the violence that is across the headlines going on. As viewers, we know that's not true. Right. As this is going on, a large protest has amassed outside of police headquarters where people are chanting in the streets and our friend, Dr. Volker, the doctor to the poor, as Bruno put it, gets up onto the back of what looks like a pickup truck and starts rallying the crowd. Yeah, she's talking about how now the police are spreading these lies that they were shot at first and they know it's not, she knows it's not true and they know it's not true and it's just a justification for the violence. This scene bounces back and forth between Dr. Volker rallying socialists in the streets and Police Chief Zorzebel meeting with Councillor Benda and eventually the Lord Mayor of Berlin where they are strategizing for how they will respond to this protest. I like this scene a lot even though it's fairly quick because I'm, I really like Benda. I think he's one of the most dynamic, multifaceted characters. He's perplexing to me because he it's kind of his idea to cook up this story about the police being shot at first and really in the same breath he's urging Zorzabel not to meet violence with violence to be more moderate in his approach for how to handle the protests yeah head of the political police has a more judicious more political solution even though it's a little underhanded more political solution to this problem one thing I liked is that uh, Zorzabel and Benda are talking in the office about the protest outside before the Lord Mayor enters and Benda urges a little bit of caution, like, hey, don't meet them directly with violence. We don't want to instigate more of a problem. And Zorzabel is like, what, do we just wait for them to storm the Bastille? Making a direct reference to the French Revolution, as if the thought in Zorzabel's mind is that socialists pose the greatest threat to the German state. This echoes back to earlier episodes where he was speaking on the top of the steps about the coming May Day protests. Ooh, I like that. That's a good catch. So eventually, the Lord Mayor, Zorzabel, and Benda cook up a plan to put a little media spin on the events that are going on. They are going to recast the story of what happened on May Day as law enforcement officers risking their own lives under a hail of bullets. And Benda seems to think he's got actual proof in the form of an injured officer to get the deal done. This is why I like Benda, because on the one hand, he's advising a moderate approach, don't be violent in reaction to the protest. And on the other hand, he's like, but hey, let's cook up this lie about what actually happened yesterday at the May Day protest, and I have a great scapegoat, a great story for you. One more detail about this scene is that when the camera moves outside to the socialist demonstrations, you see a young man push his way toward the front of the crowd where there's leaflets on a table. He picks one up, looks at it very briefly, and asks if he himself can sign up for the Socialist Party. Of course, he's told, yes, sign up right here, comrade. And he pretty quickly turns toward the front of the crowd and starts chanting, murder, murder. Remember the face of that young man, because he will come into play later. So in the next scene, we see Charlotte go to Svetlana's flat. And if you think back to episode four, the last time we saw Charlotte in that episode, she's in the basement of the Mocha FD Cafe. She's just slept with Bruno and he's now blackmailing her into spying on Garyan. She gives Garyan a phone call from the basement of the Mocha FD Cafe. And he tells her about Svetlana's apartment and suggests that she goes there to investigate. I love Charlotte's detective work. <laughs> she shows up 
to the apartment, claims to be the police, even though technically she doesn't work for the police. The caretaker says, well, nobody's home, although Kartikov did spend the night the night before. So Charlotte's already got that clue, that Kartikov is still in Berlin and he spent the night at Svetlana's last night. The caretaker lets Charlotte go up to the room to try ringing the bell and see if anyone's home, and she uses that opportunity to peer through the keyhole and see that no one's there. She goes ahead and rings the bell, no one answers. So she's confident the apartment is empty. She goes downstairs and tells the caretaker, okay, well, I'll have to come back another time. She pretends to walk down the stairs opens the door for the sound and closes it while she's still inside. Brilliant move. So brilliant. A-plus detective work. Garion's not doing that shit, I can guarantee you. Garion wouldn't know how to do that shit <laughs> if it slapped him in the face. Then she picks the lock to Svetlana's apartment, gains entry, and even though she makes a little bit of noise, she's in with the door locked behind her. She sees, like, a debauched scene in there. There's just, like, wine glasses everywhere. It's a large, opulent apartment, but it just looks like it's been lived in by squatters, frankly. Eventually, someone comes to ring the bell for the apartment, and that spooks her. She runs up the same service stairwell in the back that Kartikov ran up in the cold open. The person who comes a knocking at the door is Mr. Trechkov, who we've actually seen before, but he is going to become uh, an even bigger, more important character later in this episode. But it's very convenient that the directors reintroduce him to us here in this scene so that we can get sort of familiarized with his face, because otherwise I don't think I would have recognized him. He rings the bell, no one answers, and when he gets back into the car, he orders his driver to take him to Holland and the driver says, yes, Mr. Trechkov. After going up that service stairwell, Charlotte finds the trail of blood left behind by the Russian henchman whose hand was cut open by the bottle of milk in the opening scene. She follows it all the way up to the window that Kartikov fell out and looks down. We only see the book floating there. We know Kartikov got away. <laughs> but Charlotte sees the book and goes down to inspect, and when she gets to the pool, she picks up the book, flips through the pages, and sees that there's still a bullet stuck in the book. Absolutely classic. And I'm gonna assume that that is a pro-socialist, uh, Trotskyist, tracked. Absolutely. That Kartikov was carrying around in his shirt coat and He's it ride saved or die, his life. So. He is a ride or die Trotsky. Definitely hearing Trotsky's like diary in his breast pocket. I tried my damnedest to figure out what book that was. There is no section of the show that you can pause to catch any frame that reveals the title in a legible way. I can't figure out what it is, but if you know what this small red book should be or would have been, please email us at thedlpresents at gmail.com. I am very curious. Everything about the show is, in, is intentional, and I assume that if the directors didn't bother to show the name of the book, it's because they think either it's not important or they're just assuming that we're assuming that it's some Trotsky tome. You've got to know that it's a pro-socialist book. I, I just don't know if it's based on a real, true-to-life book. Now, the conclusion of the scene is that Charlotte basically gets arrested. She's <laughs> yeah. trying to leave the apartment after gathering the bullet evidence, and the police have been warned by the caretaker that someone broke into the apartment. Charlotte gets picked up and we change to the next scene. While Charlotte is rummaging through Svetlana's apartment, we see that Rath has gone down to this film studio where Graf told him that that particular brand or type of film would have been developed. This is the Geyer Film Lab. Garion kind of like busts his way into a film preview or a film screening that's going on that hey features Marlene Dietrich. If you remember from episode four, Marlene Dietrich was a hot star at this time in Germany, and the man that is shown smoking in that film screening would have been the director that got her her big film breakthrough. 
That was Sternberg, von Sternberg. After getting into the film lab the hard way, Garion eventually reveals his police credentials and says that he actually wants to talk to Geyer himself. That's who he was looking to meet. He wants to know how many copies of the porn film were made and who took them. Garion finds out, as he reveals in a phone call later, that there was only one copy of that film ever made and that the negative isn't stored at Geyer, that the courier that brought it initially always came to pick up that negative. So he's got some leads, but he still doesn't have the negative. He goes looking for Kryaski then, hoping that he can give him his next lead. Well, he knows that Franz Kryaski is the courier that brought the film oh. to the Geyer Film Lab, and that Kryaski would have been the courier to come pick it up. Because that's mm. the name he had to give the front desk that was actually on file. Koenig's name wasn't really registered I with them. I didn't even pick that up. Koenig might have done the artistic work, but he didn't do the technical work. Rath tries to find Kryaski at their usual meetup spot in the subway station, and they do cross paths, but Kryaski hops on a subway train before he can sort of ask many questions. This scene is interesting. Franz knows that Garion knows enough now to suspect him. So Franz eludes him by jumping onto a train car and telling a group of socialists, I suppose, with red armbands on, that Garion is a police officer and they push him out of the train car before it can leave for the neighborhood of wedding. So this angry crowd, whoever they may be, sort of shove Garion out of the train and back onto the train platform in a very painful looking thump and in scene. Next we get a very quick scene of my good friend Edgar Kasabian at the Mocha FD Cafe having a little conversation with the what we are going to presume is a politician. This connected so many dots for me. When I watched the show at first it's almost as if I must have been asleep during the scene. This makes it absolutely clear that Edgar Kasabian, the Armenian, is behind the blackmail. Absolutely. He lays out the photos. Mm -hmm. He shows this man, again, we're going to presume a politician, that he has him in the most compromising of situations. This is the guy. The Armenian is behind the whole scheme. Garion doesn't know it. Charlotte doesn't know it. But we know it as of now. The Armenian tells the man, I don't want anything from you right now. You don't need to do anything at all. You just wait. But someday I'm going to come call. Typical mob stuff. Someday I'm going to need a favor. Someday I'm going to need you to vote in my favor. Just wait. It's just so strategic. It's preemptive blackmail. Like, this guy's done nothing. Kasavian doesn't even need him right now, but he's got him in his pocket. By extension, because Franz Krajewski is involved, and now the Armenian is definitely involved, we know that Dr. Schmidt is involved. If you'll remember to episode one, I believe it is, as soon as Dr. Schmidt finds out from Franz that there's been a copy of a film made, an illicit copy, he goes straight to the Armenian to tell him. They are partners in some way in this blackmail scheme, and it's all tying together now in episode five. For the second time, the Armenian is interrupted while he's having an important meeting with someone he's trying to intimidate because someone is outside in a car. This time it's not Dr. Schmidt, it's Arkartikov. Kartikov! beaten and battered but still alive the yeah. taxi cab driver says this guy's not even gonna pay and he's like making a mess of my car the armenian opens the door for a man he barely recognizes as his violin player every couple nights and kartikov says i've got something for you it's gold it's the sorokin family's gold i don't know what that is but the armenian apparently does 
ears gold. And he's like, yes. His ears perk up, notably. <laughs> the camera cuts to Garion heading down to Charlottenburg to grab Charlotte from the precinct where she's being from held. Charlottenburg is a western Berlin neighborhood where Charlotte's been picked up for picking the lock on Svetlana's flat. Yeah, and Garion's kind of like peeved. He's like a bit annoyed that Charlotte's bothered to get herself in trouble and needed to call him to come get her. But it turns out Charlotte gathered some super important evidence. First of all, she tells Garion that Kartikov is still in town, and in fact, he spent the night at Svetlana's flat the night before. Secondly, Charlotte showed the bullet to what she says are her colleagues, and Garion makes sure to point out are just his colleagues at the precinct in Charlottenburg. What a dick. And those officers let her know it's a 6.35 millimeter bullet. Garion remarks that this is like a, like a toy gun, essentially, like a, a gun for actors. After being dismissive of Charlotte, Garion eventually realizes that she's on to something here with Kartikov and suggests the two of them go to lunch and look through the contents of Kartikov's suitcase a little closer. Garion's unable to hail a cab because he's from Cologne and he's a bit of a bumpkin. Yeah, and Charlotte's like, I got this. Hold my beer. I got this. Hold my beer. I got this. I'm going to get the attractive young woman treatment here. And she steps out into the street and hails a cab easily. And she's so, I love this because she's very flippant about his comment, which was very derogatory. And it just rolls off her back. And she's like, actually, let me show you all the things you cannot do. Well, he's right, technically. Those officers in Charlottenburg are not her colleagues. They are Garion's colleagues, but it's still super rude to say it. Garion also accuses Charlotte of lying to him by saying that she was Bohm's assistant, which apparently she is not. But she says, and, and I can understand this, it was an assumption that you had already made. I was just trying to go along with what you thought. Still technically a lie. Yeah, so she's actually, like, not really employed by anyone to do anything other than archive graphs, crime scene photos, right? Which she has wisely outsourced somebody else. So that her time's all free to actually do detective work. Man, my girl. Team Charlotte 100%. I don't care if she's dishonest. Oh, I love her. This next scene makes me love her even more. At lunch, Garion and Charlotte go through the contents of Kartikov's suitcase, and Charlotte recognizes a name in there. It's our friend Trechkov. It turns out that Charlotte's uncle plays with Trechkov, not at the Mocha FD necessarily, but in a different club called Hollanders. Yeah, so Trechkov would have been Kartikov's bandmate at the Mocha FD Cafe. That's how they knew each other. Charlotte's uncle also knows Trechkov, and she does too, but she knows him from his side hustle, his nighttime gig. Once a week, late into the night at Hollanders? Hollanders. Right before this scene ends, we get a cute little exchange between Charlotte and Garion where she asks him if he's going to eat like the rest of his potatoes. And he's like, no, you can have it. And then she just so happily takes his plate and starts eating. And he gives her this very endearing little smile. Like he had just been kind of a dick to her about the whole my colleagues, not your colleagues thing. And I think he's warming up to her. She is shoveling those potatoes down. <laughs> my girl's hungry. Yeah. Hungry and tired. In she doesn't get sleep. to sleep today, but she can eat. Oh my god. At this point, Garion's still being a little bit dismissive of Charlotte, but she kind of has an in that he really needs. So she knows about Trechkov, and he she knows about this club that he's going to be performing at later, where they could go meet up with him and ask him some questions. And I, I think at first, Garion's like, oh yeah, I'm the detective. I'm going to go do this work. And Charlotte's like, you need me, because you're not going to get into this club without me. Not only that, you don't even know where it is. And nobody will tell you because you're the police. Garion suggests they meet up that evening at 9 p.m. 
Charlotte laughs in his face. 9 p.m.? Jesus, Garion, nobody goes out to have any fun at 9 p.m., she thought to herself silently. After this, Garion gets dropped off at the police station where there's kind of a hullabaloo going on. Sounds like there's going to be a press conference, and he runs into his good buddy Cattlebock there. Cattlebock calls in a favor. With Garion's help, he's able to get into the modern equivalent of a press conference that Zorjubel is holding to explain law enforcement's response to the May Day protests. This is when we find out that the man from the cold open is actually a police officer, and Benda has schemed up this plan to use his injury, having been shot by his son in his bed, as a kind of ploy or justification for the police brutality on May Day, saying that this police officer was injured in the line of duty he was shot at first, and that's why the police then became violent against the protesters at the May Day. They claim the police were there for de-escalation, and they were met with a hail of bullets, a tale as old as time. By the looks on their faces, Garion and Cattlebock are both not buying it. Mm-mm. Lottie also got dropped off at the police station, and while this press conference is going on, she is turning in her application to join the homicide squad. While she's there dropping off her application, she also picks up a flyer for a position as a housekeeper at Counselor Benda's house. I love that you know she's getting that for Greta. Yeah. She doesn't say it. They don't show Greta in any of the rest of the episode. It's nice the way the directors are able to show you what's happening instead of tell you. She sees the position, and you know immediately because you're connecting the dots that this is for her friend Greta. Mm -hmm. It's a job being in the employ of bigwig Counselor Benda. Yeah, it would be a good gig. Next, we see Stefan and Benda in a car together having a little chat. And at first I thought, oh, this is just normal kind of police business. Stefan seems to be kind of like a, almost like a gopher. He's got like, he's wearing multiple hats at the police station, or at least so it seems. So I didn't think that much of this conversation other than the fact that Benda warns him to take the word security out of his vocabulary. And that made my ears perk up. Benda also says that he's doing a good job. I mean, after berating him a little bit for maybe being foolhardy, he says, you're doing a good job, Stefan. When I first watched this episode, I had no idea what this conversation was about. It made Benda come off a little nefarious, and I I wasn't sure why, because it seemed like he was manipulating this young, naive boy. But now that I've seen the episode three times over, I realize that Stefan is spying on Bruno. For what? We have no clue. But that is what he's working on, for Counselor Benda. And Counselor Benda seems to tell both Stefan and us as viewers for the first time that this is an extraordinarily dangerous assignment. And Stefan's being a little bit too lighthearted about it. He's not quite taking it as seriously as it deserves. And we've seen even in this episode, a few scenes earlier where Stefan's rifling through Bruno's desk and he spills the ink, he's being somewhat careless or at least clumsy. Yeah, he's not as clandestine as he thinks he is. Exactly. Next up, we get Garion and Charlotte's big night out. This scene that caps off the episode is reminiscent of Zhuas Zhustab from episode two in that it is a beautiful glimpse into the varied nightlife of Berlin, starting apparently, according to Charlotte Ritter, at about midnight and beyond. It turns out that Hollanders is a place that Garion wouldn't be able to find and no one would tell him about because it's a gay club. (laughs) Sure is. 
So they show up and head into the the gay club. I have to point out that Charlotte's looking fantastic in her little flower dress. And Garion says as much when they meet to go in. Yeah, and she's confident. She's obviously been there before. She's got friends inside. As soon as she walks in the door, she gets asked if she wants to go powder her nose in the bathroom. And she obliges, of course. And then comes out very bubbly to go talk to Garion. Well, Garion's at the bar alone via Charlotte powdering her nose. He bumps into another co-worker. It's Herr Graf, dressed divine. Looking great in drag. And, you know, this scene could be awkward. It's two co-workers who don't know that much about one another's personal lives running into one another in a gay bar. But they play it off pretty cool. Garion actually seems, you know, I thought surprisingly open-minded. It's nice that Garion sees Graf. And there's not dialogue from Garion. But he goes through all the motions mentally, and you can see it on his face that he's realizing, oh, oh. Yeah. Okay. Oh, you're gay. Uh, Okay, cool. And it's nice that we can tell via Garion's recognition of what's going on here and the way that Graf is dressed that this is not a foreign idea to Garion. This is probably not the first time Garion's seen or heard about men dressing in drag, and that would have been true of the time. Stay tuned for the second chapter of the podcast where we go through the history, the varied history of sexuality, and the study of it in 1929 Berlin. But Garion's at least hip to the idea that this is normal for some people. Yeah. When Charlotte gets back from powdering her nose in the bathroom, she meets Garion at the bar and says she'll have what he's having. And then the bartender goes, oh, a lemonade? And she's like, what? Put a shot in there. Garion asks if the man performing in drag on stage is the Tretchkoff they're looking for. And Charlotte says, yep, we'll get a chance to talk to him at the break. And what a break they have. Great conversation with Tretchkov. Now, before that conversation happens, we have a quick interchange between Garion and Charlotte, where they kind of lay out their personal situation. Am I right? Yeah. Charlotte asks, so, are you married? Garion says, no. And Charlotte asks, well, but are you, are you going steady then? Garion says, no, it's, it's a little more complicated, my situation. And Charlotte throws out this wonderful quote And if you watch in German or English, her next lines are in quotation marks, though Leslie and I yet have not been able to find where this quote is from. She says something along the lines of, Love is not simple, it's complex. Otherwise, our Sigismund wouldn't have embarrassed himself. Now, when I first watched this episode with the subtitles off, I thought she was making a reference to Sigmund Freud, but now I'm not so sure because of research from Leslie Leake. Well, she could still be talking about Freud. That part I haven't gotten to the bottom of because even though we know him as Sigmund Freud, his born name was Sigismund, which I learned through a little bit of research was a not uncommon Bavarian or German name. It could have been a reference to a uh, Roman leader in that region who is said through probably legend and tall tale to have had many lovers and possibly illegitimate children. Garion asks Charlotte what her situation is. And she says, me? Go steady? No. (laughs) No way. And she seems to suggest that people in Berlin are just a little faster than the fairer folk, that they're moving and shaking and can't be tied down, or at least she can't be tied down. She blows smoke into the air in a way that is blatantly sexual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
She's feeling herself. I think it's fair to say. She is. After a little cocaine and a shot, Charlotte's feeling herself at 1 a.m. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's feeling good. I actually love this scene because, like, she's obviously, like, high as a kite, really drunk. And she's just having a good fucking time with Garion. I think she knew all along where she was taking Garion and what the vibe would be like and relished in the thought of taking him into her world where things work on her terms because she's so frequently been on Garion's turf. I'm actually very surprised, though, because Garion gets kind of thrown into the situation. I don't think he knew it was going to be a gay club, but he shows up, and honestly, other than ordering a virgin drink, a lemonade, he kind of fits in. He gets dancing with Charlotte, and they do this, like, apparently common gyration that is <laughs> common of the time. The dancing in this scene is phenomenal and also really frenetic. So I like that after the first dance that we see in this scene, the directors are willing to show at least the extras in the back and then eventually Charlotte and Gary and themselves pouring sweat, something that I feel like you don't see in, in American television shows. If you are down in a smoky basement bar doing a little coke and dancing fast like that, you're going to be pouring sweat. But in an American show, everyone would be like powdered and, and to perfection. At least the extras in this scene are glistening if not dripping with their hair matted up against their faces in sweat. Like you said, uh, Garion and Charlotte end up looking pretty sweaty by the time they go talk to Tretchkov about what he knows about Kartikov. Let's get to that Tretchkov conversation. It's fabulous. Tretchkov is definitely fabulous. He's my hero of this episode. My favorite quote from him is that discretion is not my passion. <laughs> and it certainly isn't as he spills the beans immediately about Kartikov. So, number one, he praises Kartikov. He that, loves Kartikov. That he's a genius musician. He says his violin playing is of the devil, which is definitely a compliment. And that he's sort of wasting his time and energy meddling in this politics that he tends to be meddling in. Wasting his gifts with politics. In a very dramatic fashion, he explains this. Now, when asked about Svetlana, he says, Ugh, her? She's even worse. I hate her. <laughs> she fills his head with all this nonsense and then runs away with him. So it's possible that he's been told the lie that Kartikov is on tour, or whatever, running away with Svetlana. Trechkov may not know exactly where Kartikov and Svetlana are now, but he does know the location of the Red Fortress, and he spills the beans. He says that it's on Wurmstrasse. There's a printer there. And that is the headquarters of the Red Fortress. Apparently, that's the lead that Charlotte and Gary were looking for because they look at each other and their faces light up. Now, a few other things about this little scene with Trechkov, which we rewatched Leslie and I like five or six times in a row. In the English language version with English subtitles on, the Netflix dub, the parrots in the background over Trechkov's left shoulder are subtitled in or dubbed in as saying things that Trechkov has recently said, such as topple Stalin. Kind of a funny, humorous overlay for the audio. Yeah, Trechkov calls Kartikov an idiot, and the, the birds are in the background saying, idiot, idiot. Now, in the German language version, the original version with English subtitles, they don't bother to subtitle any of the sounds that the parrots make, but you can hear them making little sounds. I don't speak German, so I can't tell if they are saying those same funny lines in the original audio. If you speak enough German to know, please email us at thedlpresents at gmail.com. I would love to know. The only other thing that stuck with me about the Trechkov conversation is that he seems to know a lot about the Red Fortress and the goings-ons amongst this 
pro-Trotsky cell of defectors. He seems to know that Trotsky is in Turkey right now, and as Trechkov put it, he's down there wasting other people's lives, whatever that means. So apparently he's had a lot of conversations with Kartikov, and that jives with what we heard about Kartikov from Elizabeth Benka, that he liked to talk, and when he did talk, people liked to listen. So although we haven't heard much from Kartikov in terms of politics so far, apparently he was a charmer. And I, I like Kartikov more and more, and this conversation pushed that agenda for me forward just a little bit. As far as we know, he's still alive. The scene with the Armenian ended at least favorably for his life, let's say. But I am curious to know where his fortunes are headed. He has nine lives. He's used up about four. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to see how the other five go. After Trechkov spills the beans to Garion and Charlotte, they head back into the night to go presumably home. But after a night of flirtation and dancing, Garion asks Charlotte if he can take her home. He actually demands it. He says, like, no more back talk. Let me take you home. Charlotte seems to know her way around men really, really well. I love the quiet confidence she puts on here. She's just like, oh, that's, that's very kind. But I actually have plans, so I'm gonna go. We all take slightly different angles about how hard Garion's trying to come on to Charlotte, as in, is he trying to take her home and bang her? Or just walk her home as a gentleman? I think even if he's trying to tell himself he's just taking her home as a gentleman, he wants that to end in a makeout at the minimum. Yeah, 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 yeah. That seems appropriate. And but... Charlotte doesn't seem totally opposed to the idea. But she relishes in the fact that she can legitimately say she has other plans. If you recall from earlier in the episode, she agreed to meet Stefan the very next morning on Sunday to go swimming at the lake. And so it, she really does have plans. And at this point in time, it is the next morning. The sun is rising as they part ways. Yes, yeah, so she only has a few hours to do what she needs to do before she's got a date with another guy. But she's got one important question before she leaves. Love this. Which is... Hey, do I get paid for this? I was technically helping you with police work all night. What's on my status here? I love her. She knows what she wants, and she is after it. Yeah. Garion plays it sly because he's a new guy in town, is in charge of literally nothing in the Berlin police office. So he says, I, I honestly don't know. I think he's taken aback by her upfrontedness, but yeah, then he's like, well, well, yeah, I actually don't know. But I think this is the first time Garion realizes that this girl's not just in for a good time and maybe after me as a man. Yes. She legitimately is interested in the police work and wants to be doing the kind of work that I am doing. Yes. And it seems like he hasn't put two and two together on that front until just now, when she both, A, turns down his advances, not in a mean way, but in a very confident way. And number two, she is interested primarily in what her role in this investigation is on an official basis. And that seems to finally click with Gary at the very end of episode five. Wait a minute. Leslie, do you hear that sound? Do you know what that means? Does it mean it's time to rifle through our boss's desk like a buffoon? No, you'll just spill ink everywhere. That sound means it's time to hike up our fishnet stockings and take a stroll through the history and context of human sexuality in Berlin during the 1920s. Leslie, we've got a first for the podcast. Listen to this. 
We haven't had a beer on the podcast yet. I've been avoiding First it. beer. Been avoiding beer on the podcast in favor of wine, both because red wine is fucking delicious and beer makes you burp. But in the editing of the podcast, I listened back and realized everything seems to make us burp. <laughs> There's so many burps on this podcast. 100% from me. Yeah, so just <sighs> embrace it. Because episode five has Charlotte's first burp, I'm just going to drink a beer on here. Cheers to Charlotte. Cheers to you, Charlotte. So the history and context portion of our show for episode five centers around sex and sexuality in Berlin and Germany on the greater scale in the 1920s. Leslie, when I first watched this show, I have to say I had a lot of incorrect assumptions about German society in the pre-Nazi years, in the Weimar years. We talked about it in the first episode and in our episode zero that, you know, Americans in general don't know a whole lot about Germany and they don't know a whole lot about Germany at this time. I just assumed that they were uptight and super conservative. And that isn't true at all. I definitely made the assumption that the German people allowed Nazis to rise to power because they shared the same conservative ideologies. And I'm sure that's true for some people, but that's not what we see in Babylon Berlin. And that's not what I've gathered from research on sexuality in the Weimar Republic. Turns out once people had political control of the country, they favored a much more liberal tack, especially led by certain lawmakers and certain people on the left side of the political spectrum. But it was cool to learn about the sexual reform movement that, you know, was broadly happening from 1919 all the way to 1933 when, you know, things got rolled back quite a bit. But the part that I was most interesting to me is that sexual reforms in this context meant greater sexual liberty. Whenever you hear about, like, reform in the United States anyway, it usually means things are getting more conservative, more restrictive. Mm -hmm. So far, the show has danced around fun and interesting sexual topics. We've got the cross-dressing, you know, drag performing, Psycho Nikoros. We've got Charlotte Ritter moonlighting as a sex worker in the quasi-legal dungeon underneath the Mocha FD Cafe. We've got a darker side of sexuality with the porn film Garyan's Come to Berlin to Investigate that is clearly nefarious blackmail. And now in episode five, we have this vibrant, fun, lively nightlife at Hollanders, where both Graf and Trechkov, who really steals the show, (laughs) are dressed in drag and just living it up. So fabulous. The fact that there were these vibrant nightclubs with cross-dressing men and women, while it was surprising for me and maybe you to see in this context, it would have been spot on. That would have been what was going on. And this whole movement really started all the way back in 1871 when two particular items in the German penal code related to sexual activity, specifically birth control, were reformed. So paragraphs 218 and 219 of the German penal code from 18. 1871 completely prohibited abortion and also made it illegal to assist in performing or aiding someone in getting an abortion. Very much like modern day Texas. Look how far we've come. Sorry, Texas listeners. You haven't come very far. Though access to and information about birth control was a major thrust early on in this movement, the movement also came to embrace the normalization of alternative sexualities. Not everyone was going to be a heterosexual man or a heterosexual woman. Progressive things Thinkers in Germany wanted a new society that recognized these truths, brought them out into the open, where then it could be part of the, you know, budding intellectual society of study. This also led to reformed attitudes towards sex work and prostitution, not only in the legal realm, but also in terms of the morality that gets tied up in sex work. That was changing in a big way at the turn of the last century in Germany and up until the Nazi 
regime. I'd say they were living in a more enlightened time with attitudes towards sex work, or so it seems, than we are right now in America. I would agree. It was just very, from a legal standpoint, it was very laissez-faire. Homosexuality and prostitution were essentially decriminalized. You technically could get arrested or serve jail time for either offense, but no one was out there trying to entrap gay people or prostitutes. As of the 1920s. Yeah. Like we mentioned previously, the sex reform movement was really happening within the parameters of Weimar Germany. But even as early as the late 1800s, 1860, 1870, there were starting to be a new way of thinking about sex and sexuality in Germany. And in fact, Germany is sort of cited as the birthplace of the term homosexuality in 1869. And I, I didn't realize or I didn't think about about this until I did more research about how significant it would be to have a term to be able to define yourself and then be able to identify with other people who identified themselves the same way. And not everyone in German society at this time was okay with or, or wanting to be accepting of alternative sexualities and, and change their own moral view towards sexuality, but apparently the vast majority did, and this idea of the sexual reform movement crossed party lines and had broad support from the Liberal Party, the Social Democrats, Socialists, and Communists. So that was news to me, but that kind of united all of the left of the political spectrum parties in terms of getting women's votes. And I think that's an important underpinning to this whole thing, is that in the Weimar Republic, women could vote, and it made it politically important to support ideas that would advance women's autonomy and freedom, things like access to birth control and abortion. And what came along with that is the stuff you're mentioning right now, Leslie that there was increasing pressure to recognize both legally and socially the truth of what people were. Again, it's not that prostitution or homosexuality were legal per se, but they were decriminalized. The powers in charge, you know, weren't spending their time tracking down gay people and prostitutes. So in my reading, it was hard to get it, it's always hard to understand how people on the street on an individual and granular level felt about things at the time. Yeah. When you read about history, that's unfortunately something you have to imagine. That's a good point. But in in general, I read that Germans were expected to keep their sex lives private. If you were a homosexual, okay. You were not going to be arrested for it, perhaps not denied a job for it, as long as you kept it quite private and not commercialized. So I think it would have been difficult to be a, a homosexual prostitute or to advertise as such. And I think that's good reason why, if I may tie it back to the show, why Graf is not cross-dressing at work and does not come across as effeminate at work, though that might be something that that really expresses himself. It's not something he brings into his professional life, and apparently that's the way it was in Berlin. Yeah, in fact, the scene that we get to see when watching episode five of Babylon Berlin seems to be kind of the perfect representation of what life would have been like. It was still a subculture. People weren't just parading around openly gay, but there was enough of an identity around alternative sexualities for there to be gay nightclubs, gay bars, cross-dressers. 
Yeah, and that it would be whispered about, not plastered on billboards. Exactly. And that Garion, as an officer, wouldn't know where to find it, and no one would tell him. One other little fun fact here about alternative sexualities is the idea of transgendered and transvestite people. So this was actually an idea that came about by Magnus Hirschfeld, who we will talk about more later. In 1910, so even a decade or two before the Weimar Republic, he came up with the word or the term transvestite because at the time cross-dressing was illegal and could be prosecuted as being a public nuisance or public indecency but Hirschfeld was kind of an advocate for being able to express yourself if you had an alternative sexuality and so due to his advocacy the government began issuing people transvestite certificates so that that if they had a certificate to be a transvestite they could cross-dress and not be prosecuted very cool in yeah in my research for this magnus hirschfeld kept coming up over and over again to the point that we are going to do a full history and context episode on him and his institute in a future episode. But in brief, he was a German Jewish doctor and a sexologist. He was practicing in Charlottenburg, which would have been a a neighborhood in West Berlin. And in the late 1800s, he founded the Scientific Humanitarian Committee in Berlin. And it was created to campaign for social recognition of gay, bisexual, and transgender men and women, and to fight against the legal persecution of those people. Then he went on to found the Institute of Sexual Research in 1919, which again, we'll do a full episode on that because it's fascinating. It was the first such institute of its kind. They were studying human sexuality exclusively and turning that study and research into publicly disseminated information in order to help give the public at large a better understanding of the broad spectrum of human sexuality. And this is decades before the Kinsey Report in the United States, for instance. Decades before. Hirschfeld also initiated the founding of the World League for Sexual Reform in 1921 during the first Congress for Sexual Reform in Berlin, which he himself organized. There were future Congresses which were held in Copenhagen in 1928, London in 1929, Vienna in 1930, and then Bruno. B-R-N-O. Bruno? Bruno. In 1932. I apologize. Just say it in an Italian accent and no one will catch it. I'm so sorry to all the people of Bruno, but I don't know how to say that. So, of course, the last Congress was held in 1932 because the Nazis came to power in 1933. And they were not trying to have any more international sex conferences. So, uh, Dr. Hirschfeld actually lived in exile in France uh, for just a few more years. And then he died on his birthday in 1935. Interesting. We'll do a whole episode, History and Context, uh, on Magnus Hirschfeld. He was one of the intellectual leaders of the sexual reform movement and totally interesting guy. Research for this History and Context portion answers some big questions for me in terms of the show. Question number one, and this is something that you brought to my attention, Leslie, how is it that the sex workers in Babylon Berlin are not all pregnant? How (laughs) is Charlotte avoiding pregnancy? I don't know much about birth control in the 1920s, but apparently it was available, legal, information and access was there in a lot of ways more progressive than some portions of the United States but I think we will also be dedicating a whole history and context episode to the medical science surrounding reproductive rights especially because it comes up later on in season two of Babylon Berlin. One other reform that happened under this sex reform movement was not only about birth control but also venereal diseases. 
Mm-hmm. STDs. STIs. The big important change was that in 1927, laws were passed in Germany to finally allow sex workers and prostitutes to seek medical attention for a venereal disease without fear of being arrested, without fear of legal retribution. Doctors no longer had to report, nor could they, report women who had come to them with a medical malady and then told them that they were sex workers. That was a huge sea change. Definitely, and unique to Germany compared to most of its other European counterparts, from what I read. Yeah, keep in mind that Alan Turing was arrested and and basically castrated for being a gay man after the Second World War in the late 40s. And here we are talking about Germany in the 20s, and they were just ahead of the game. You never learned about that. I didn't learn about that as a kid, certainly. (laughs) And, And maybe Gen Z is learning about this kind of thing more because, you know, gender identity is a more interesting and and present issue in our culture now. So maybe there is a little more look back to the past at the way society has been dealing with this over the last hundred years. I don't know. But certainly when I was in school, Leslie, not a lick of this was being talked about. Mm -mm. Well, Leslie, that wraps it for this portion of History in Context, but certainly it's not the last we will hear about sex and sexuality in the Weimar Republic. Good to know that they had a more open mind. And the directors are certainly laying down this juxtaposition between the freedom and liberation during the Weimar Republic and what's to come. The tragic irony of this show is so good and the fact that all of the characters in the show just like every German on the street in real life is watching this progressive new democratic society move forward and what they don't know but all of us do know is that they're going to run smack into one of the most repressive regimes of the last century and I feel like that casts a beautiful dark shadow over every smile that we see every dance break that we witness Every time that Charlotte exhales a big puff of smoke and just says, whew, you know that's all going to come crashing down. So before we end episode five, of course, we need to wrap up with a little bit of the delicious morsels pulled from this week's episode, the Leckerbissen. And I don't know about you, but my Leckerbissen are for the nerdiest of nerds today. Oh, good. Yeah. Those are definitely our hardcore listeners. Those are our listeners that have stuck with us now for five episodes. Thank you, nerds. Yeah. I've got a little gunplay for you, Leslie. Ooh, polarizing. (laughs) Very much so. (laughs) So I love that this show is a detective noir, or at least in large part a detective noir. But unlike American cops and robbers shows, there's not a bunch of standoffs and gun battles and, and gun firing in this show. They treat the firing of a firearm a little more seriously with a little more gravity in this show. So now that we're five episodes in, we've seen a handful of handguns and pistols and rifles, but we haven't seen a lot of main characters get shot and die. Notably, Kardakov is still alive. So I wanted to just do a quick rundown of some of the very specific weapons we've seen so far because the show producers and the people who make these kind of props and source this kind of materials obviously did their research and chose their weapons carefully. And not to give away any spoilers, but the kind of guns and the kind of bullets that any given character is using does come to be important in this first season of the show. So the first gun I want to talk about is the Lignos 3A Einhand pistol, or one-hand pistol. You see this gun twice. Once in episode one because it's Franz Krajewski's gun. He almost shoots Garion with it, but instead he fires into some bricks and Thick Cop pries that bullet out and gives it to Garion as a souvenir, and Thick Cop pockets the gun. We see that 
gun again in episode 5 when Stefan is lurking around in Thick Cop's office, opens his drawer, and that's where we see the Lignos again, and Stefan makes note of it. This version of the gun was produced by the company Lignos from 1922 to 1928 in Berlin, and interestingly, it could be cocked with one hand. So the trigger guard, that's normally an immobile object around the trigger, you can actually pull that back with your index finger to cock the gun and ready it to fire, and then use that same right hand or left hand index finger to fire the weapon. So keep that weapon in mind. It's a 6.35 millimeter small pistol, not something an officer would normally have. So I'm sure Stefan made note that it was weird to see that in Thick Cop's desk. The next gun I want to talk about is the Ortgeist, also a 6.35 millimeter gun. This is the gun that Svetlana pulls at the train station. In an earlier episode, she gets jailed for the rest of the episode, and then she gets out, or at least we know she gets out, and she must keep that gun. They didn't confiscate it, which is odd, because it's the exact same weapon she pulls out to shoot Kartikov out of the window in the beginning of episode 5. So that bullet gets lodged in a book, saving Kartikov's life. Charlotte finds it later when breaking into their apartment. She gets arrested and brought to a substation in Charlottenburg and shows it to Garion's colleagues, not her colleagues. They let her know that it's a 6.35 millimeter bullet as well from this Ortgeist gun. Garion says, oh, well, that's, that's like a gun for the theater. A gun for the opera. It's a small gun for people that don't really know how to shoot. It's for actors. Now that makes sense for Svetlana. That all tracks. But what's interesting, and I won't give away any spoilers here, but that same gun, a different version of it, not Svetlana's, but that exact same make and model, is wielded by another character later in this season. I'm not going to say who, but it's certainly someone that is not an actor. Unexpected. Unexpected. The third and last gun for this one is the Luger P08. This is the weapon you see in the very first scene of the show where that little boy finds his officer father's service pistol and wields it. That is the most stereotypical German-looking gun. That is the go-to weapon for Hollywood and film studios around the world to say, this person's German because they have this gun in hand. The Luger has an iconic look. Even I have heard of a Luger. Yeah, this particular one is the P08, but there are many varieties. And I feel like the telltale aesthetic of it is that rounded piece right at the very back where you would expect to find the hammer of a six-shooter or a revolver. The Luger, that just sticks out in my mind. The first thing that comes to my mind is uh, Indiana Jones and like the Raiders of the Lost Ark. But it's been used in countless movies. I was going to list some of the highlights here, but it was a list so long <laughs> from the late 40s all the way until films that are in production right now for release in 2022. It was just ubiquitous. My favorite, though, if I may mention just one movie, is that in the 1980 Blues Brothers film, which is the first time I saw a Luger in movies. It is wielded by the so-called Illinois Nazis. <laughs> Those damn Illinois Nazis. But yeah, that's a true-to-life Luger P08 that would have been standard military issue in the First World War um, and was produced all the way into the 1940s. Um, it was also used, at least in some small capacity in the United States, but it's almost ubiquitously used in film and television to denote a German gun. Oh, and yeah, it would have been a standard issue. German police uh, service pistol throughout the whole 1920. So very accurate that this man had it in his home, but certainly don't have a loaded gun in your house with a kid. A lot of this information came from a very interesting website that I did not previously knew existed, the Internet Movie Firearm Database. Yes, it's a real thing, and they have long lists of detailed information about just about every firearm seen in film and television, so kudos to them. What have you got for me, Leslie? Keeping on the trend of nerdy things, I'm going to talk to you all about currency. I love this. Okay, disclosure. I know nothing about currency, exchange rates, 
the value of money. <laughs> you can ask Cam. That's Leslie's live-in lover for those of you that don't know. But, but I found it very fascinating. I learned a lot of things that never crossed my mind before. So I'm going to share those things with you. You might have heard these things before. You might know this already, but I found it fascinating. I was just struck by that very small scene where Charlotte explains to Greta the amount that she could earn by, you know, working, air quotes, at the Mocha FD Cafe. It's work, people. <laughs> it was. What do they say? It's the world's oldest prof- profession it's the world's oldest profession yeah sex work is work it is sexy meow Okay, I'm going to take you back to Weimar Republic times because I think I mentioned previously that through a series of exchange rates from the 1929 Reichsmark to the 1929 U.S. dollar to today's U.S. dollar, Greta would be making, Charlotte is making about $16 a trick. The other mention of money that I was interested to know about is in the early episodes we know that Charlotte's family is 20 marks, 20 Reichsmarks short on their rent. And Charlotte promises that she will bring that in somehow, some way. What would that be? Like 20 Reichsmark short, is that like saying like, okay, we need like 30 more dollars because we, mm. we've got a little short? Or is it like we are missing a significant chunk It would of have been a lot of rent. money. So they're earning three marks for their tricks per client. So three marks is about $16. So whatever seven times 16 is... Like, that's over $100. Oh, It's like 100 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah. So when she says we're 20 marks short, she means, like, we are in dire need. Like, we are fucking way short to the point the landlord will kick us out. Yeah, and it didn't dawn on me until I was doing this research and, you know, thinking about sort of the value of a mark. Like, that would have been a lot of hard work for Charlotte that night. And her mom has to know that you can't do hour-by-hour clerical work at the police station to get 20 marks in a day. To your earlier point, though, the Reichsmark is somewhat stable. Not a lot going on with it in 1929, but during the sort of rise of Nazism in Germany, things get a little interesting. At least I found them interesting. So one thing I think I took for granted was the fact that, you know, Germany takes over, subsumes Austria in 1938. And I I never would have thought like, okay, well, what would happen to Austrian money? But sure enough, they have to switch to the Reichsmarks. Sort of a a common thing that happens. When you annex a country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But something I never thought about before. And then the Reichsmark continues to circulate through Austria, Germany, areas that it occupies throughout World War II. Another thing I found incredibly fascinating is that Germany would print special notes for different people and different places. So there were special bank notes for members of like their air force. And interestingly enough, they printed special banknotes to be used within concentration camps. So they were technically Reichsmarks, but they could not be accepted or exchanged outside of concentration camps. But they were currency made to be exchanged in concentration camps and, and labor wild. camps. Yeah. Also, why? I, I don't know. That is so wild. I know, I only know that Hitler came to power with basically no knowledge whatsoever of macroeconomics. He was not in, he wasn't an engineer of economies by any stretch of the imagination. He was in into nationalism and he knew very little else. So someone else had to have come up with that idea. Someone else in the inner circle. And to that point, towards the end of, you know, Hitler's reign in Germany, the banknotes, the Reichsmark, essentially become worthless. There's hyperinflation and people are essentially working on, like, barter trade systems. But In the chaos after the Second World War? Yes. And then, once things stabilize and allied forces are in Germany, providing some kind of infrastructure, they continue 
continuing to use the Reichsmark, but again, very interesting. The U.S. was printing their banknotes in Boston. Oh, printing Reichsmark Reichsmark in Boston. In Boston, shipping them over to Germany to be used, and they were a special Reichsmark, so they didn't look the same as all previously used banknotes. Um, so you had to be using new money. I don't think you had to be using new money. I think it was just like an indication of a, a shift in who's running things, essentially. Interesting. More of like an identity thing. And obviously, you know, it's not altruistic because during the sort of handover and who's actually printing the Reichsmark banknotes, the U.S. decides, okay, well, while they're printing it, the exchange rate to the U.S. dollar is going to be 10 to 1 what it previously was. So, oh. yeah. And then the Soviet Union is like, oh, that's an interesting scheme you got going on there. We're going to start printing Reichsmark banknotes also. So Because they for, our, for our listeners, right after the Second World War concluded, Germany was basically occupied by the Allied powers and divided geographically in terms of which one of the Allied powers was controlling, for lack of a better word, that portion of the country. So the United States may very well have been printing money in Boston for a good portion of the country, but there was also a Russian sphere of influence in another region of Germany that would have been having the same problem from Russians printing their currency, right? Yeah, exactly. And um, one thing I just thought was interesting was that when the Soviet Union and the U.S started printing the banknotes, they removed the swastika. Oh, of course. <laughs> of course. Yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> I mean, I've never actually seen or held in my hand of Reichsmark from the Nazi years, but I just assumed it had Hitler's face on it and swastikas everywhere. Mm -hmm. And it has their, um, you might know the actual name of what it is, but the emblem or the logo of like the eagle. Oh, yeah, you yeah. Know what I'm talking about? Yeah. That I know what you're talking too. about. Um, okay, so just to wrap this up. It's kind of a co-opting of an earlier symbol, but now, of course, it's pretty gauche to put that on anything. Well, right. Same with the swastika, though, too. So Yeah, co-opting of an earlier symbol, and yep. they definitely ruined it. Can't use that anymore. Yeah. No, no, no. Absolutely not. <laughs> no. So like you mentioned, the Deutschmark kind of comes into play in 1948, and then they use that currency until Germany adopts the euro in 2002. Oh, wow. The euro wasn't until 2002, wasn't adopted till then? Correct. So they joined the European Union uh, several years before that, but adopted its currency in 2002. One more note about currency in Germany. When my wife and I were there recently, one thing that I just loved and thought was wonderful about the German economy is that taxes are rolled into the prices. Love it. Every single thing you see for sale can end in zeros or whatever. It can be nice round numbers because the taxes are completely rolled in. When you go to the cash register or you need to check out, especially as a foreign traveler that doesn't speak the language, it is so much easier to know exactly what it will cost and it doesn't cost a penny more. If it's three euros on the tag, you pay exactly three euros to oh, buy it. That's so nice. They are, Imagine a world. They have advanced light years beyond the United States in that regard. <laughs> what the hell are we doing? So for the next Lecker Beast, and I want to talk about some shooting locations for season one of Babylon Berlin. Uh, first, this episode, episode five, shows some exterior shots of a big workers' protest outside the police station, outside the Red Castle. Now, the real Red Castle in 1929 was right on Alexanderplatz, which is a big, you know, intersection of many streets and a traffic hub, important traffic hub of the time. But it was badly damaged, basically destroyed in the Second World War, and so it's been demolished now. There is no Red Castle. When you see the Alexanderplatz shots of the show in season one, they're actually filming in modern-day Alexanderplatz with the modern buildings there, 
and using a little bit of digital magic to get rid of uh, the TV tower in East Berlin and some other super modern accoutrement. But otherwise, they're shooting the real thing. Now, the Red Castle, when they shoot the interior shots, that's done in a soundstage. But this protest where you see Dr. Volker standing on the back of a pickup truck, that's actually shot at the modern-day Berlin City Hall that my wife and I got to walk past. It's about a half mile from Alexanderplatz, and it really is this old red brick building. Not as castle-like as you might imagine, but it perfectly does the trick. And with green screens in the background, that's how they've created the sort of 1929 traffic and cars that you see zooming by in the periphery of the scene. But that's all shot outside of an existing building that still stands to this day. It just acts as City Hall and not a police station. The other shooting location that just blew my mind when I found out about this is a place called Studio Babelsberg. Now Studio Babelsberg will come up in the show in season three, so I won't give away anything about that, but it is the setting of a locale in season three. But in real life, Studio Babelsberg has been a place to make movies since 1912. And in 1926, they actually created and finished the first soundstage in existence, the first one that anyone knows about anyway, where you could film on set at Studio Babelsberg and also capture the audio in the same location. You wouldn't have to record that later and dub it over your actors. So that was revolutionary at the time. Now in 1929, during the events of Babylon Berlin, a famous film called Blue Angel was filmed at Studio Babelsberg, starring Marlena Dietrich, directed by Sternberg, the man that we see, you know, at the film lab, not Studio Babelsberg, but he's at the film lab viewing the film for the first time, and Gary and asks, well, who is that? And he says, it's Marlena Dietrich, you cretin. That would have been the film Blue Angel that really launched her into stardom. That was completed at Studio Babelsberg in 1929. The crazier part is that in 2016, Studio Babelsberg still existed and was still a film hub in Germany outside of Berlin, and they completed a 1,500 square kilometer, excuse me, 1,500 square meter back lot where they've recreated the cityscapes of Berlin. They have buildings there that have you know, replaceable facades that can look like a slum or an average city street or an opulent and, and decadent city. And Babylon Berlin is filmed there. They filmed the first season in large part at Studio Babelsberg. It's just crazy the way it comes full circle. It's meta. As of 2021, a United States, a U.S. investor now has the majority stake in Studio Babelsberg and it is running strong. When my wife and I were in Berlin, we stumbled across a filming of John Wick, the fourth in installment of the John Wick series, which I haven't seen, I'm sorry, Keanu Reeves fans, but John Wick is also being filmed in part at Studio Babelsberg, as was the Grand Budapest Hotel, directed by Wes Anderson, one of my favorite movies, and just countless others. We will do a full history portion of the podcast on Studio Babelsberg, because it's just an extraordinarily influential force in German film, especially around Berlin. We'll have to save that for season three. It just seemed so interesting that there was that full circle connection in episode five with von Sternberg viewing that film that would have been shot at Studio Babelsberg in 1929, even though actual season one Babylon Berlin was filmed at Studio Babelsberg, this is a tongue twister, Wow! in 2016. Good job. Holy moly. How many times can you say babel? I also learned in Germany something that tons of people probably already know, but I didn't, which is that berg means like a fortress or a fortified castle. Like things are named so-and-so berg because they were once upon a time a fortification. Oh God, I feel stupid because I always thought berg was like a neighborhood, like a borough. There's, in the modern day, there's no reason to not think that. But they added 
like Berg to the end of things because that was where you would place your defenses. Charlottenburg, Cruzburg. We're from South Carolina. There's Spartanburg. We have an Orangeburg. Orangeburg. (laughs) Interesting. All right, indulge me for a quick chat on Smoke and Six. Please do. All right, so the smallest, most minute detail in this episode caught my eye. When Greta and Charlotte are going to meet up at the Mocha FD Cafe, one of them is on a tram car, and a sign on the tram car happens to say, no smoking. And I don't know why, but that stuck out to me like a sore thumb, because you see most of our main characters just ripping cigs at will. Everybody smokes. Everybody. I assume that children in strollers in Babylon, (laughs) Berlin, smoke. Hand rolled. Hand rolled. Everyone in Germany in the modern day was hand rolling their own cigarettes. (laughs) How classy. Okay, so that stood out. That caught my attention. I was like, why would they be sort of regulating smoking cigs in a tram car, but you can smoke in restaurants and outside of restaurants. And And in the police station. Yeah, exactly. You're essentially smoking everywhere. And apparently Germany was kind of on the forefront of anti-smoking research. So in the 19-teens, like around 1912 to 1919, um, they started sort of publishing some anti-smoking research in Germany. The government was a little bit sort of laissez-faire about it, but it was building a little bit of momentum. So there were no hard and fast anti-smoking rules. That might have been something that the tram car, you know, operation system put in place, or it could have been something on a more local level, like a local level policy in Berlin for tram cars. Um, But it was not like a widespread policy that you weren't allowed to smoke in tram cars, for example. Something I did not know is that Nazi Germany, they are sort of known for being very anti-smoking, which I found very interesting. It makes sense because they're kind of stamping out... Vice. Yes, vice. Everything they consider vice. Exactly. Including dancing. And Hitler was very anti-smoking and one of his sort of left-hand men was going to have a statue made of himself and he was smoking in the statue and that was just like, that pissed Hitler off. Oh, I've never heard of that. (laughs) Yeah. I found a very interesting article published in a public health journal. So this is like a peer-reviewed article, one you might find like on JSTOR. Ooh, JSTOR. I lost my JSTOR access years ago. (laughs) Oh, I still have mine. Hope you're still listening, nerds. (laughs) And this is where they turn it off. (laughs) Fuck (laughs) JSTOR. I wish I could still read articles. I was just very surprised to find an academic article on this random-ass Leckerbeeson topic that we decided to talk about on this episode. Give it to me. Here we are. This article was titled, Tobacco Policies in Nazi Germany. Not as simple as it seems. And this was published way back in 2008, but essentially they, the authors of this article, reviewed a lot of old documents, political papers, policies from Germany, and things like media announcements, propaganda posters, and so on and so forth. Because apparently, and I don't think we would know this because we're not German, and I don't know if the common German person would know this or not, but through the years, Nazi Germany has been thought of as being very anti-smoking. So that's why this article came about, because what they found was that really, even under Nazi Germany, there were no hard, fast anti-smoking policies. It was more of like a peer-to-peer shaming thing, because Ah. Hitler didn't really like it, Ah. um, didn't want his people doing it, and, you know, people were expected to fall in line, even with their vices or their extracurricular activities. 
interesting that just the strong cult of personality around a dictator like that has ripple effects out into society where I would like to think that it's people who quit smoking, but I know better. And it was likely young men who simply did not pick up the habit because they were trying to follow the example of the highly regimented, you know, German soldier that many of them eventually became. And I do think some of the more zealous party members, you know, took it upon themselves to implement anti-smoking policies wherever their jurisdiction was, whether it was like a physical location, like a town or within a department, like personnel wouldn't be allowed to smoke or something like that. But it was a not commonplace across Germany anti-smoking policy. On, I'm so torn about this. On the one hand, it's like, yeah, don't smoke. It's bad for you. That is actually probably a good message for public health. But then on the other hand, I feel like it's just coming from a place of overly uptight puritanical bullshit that I cannot fucking stand. <laughs> to you, I don't think that it was really based in science. Although, as I mentioned before, Germany was researching and building sort of the body of science around smoking and its negative effects, especially they already knew at this point, you know, women who were pregnant shouldn't smoke, children shouldn't be smoking, and even before um, Hitler was in power and the Nazi party was in power, there were sort of anti-smoking campaigns for children and for mm. pregnant moms. So they were on to something, but I don't think that the um, rules and sort of practices under Nazi Germany came from like a scientific basis. Okay, okay. Yeah, just more of a, the social norm of smoking yeah. was something they did not respect. And that's more of my personal take on it. I mean, maybe Hitler was reading, like, scientific journals at night, but I just don't think so. I don't think so either. And though he didn't smoke, that man was on a cocktail of drugs and narcotics. Yeah. For many years. Yeah, woof. And uh, what was his, you know, side piece's name? Ava? Ava Braun? She smoked and he hated it. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's that's great, Lacker Beeson, right there. I didn't know Ava Braun smoked. Apparently. Yeah, Hard apparently. That was from Wikipedia, so this was, that was not from the peer-reviewed journal article, but, you know. I think this explains why folks in Germany today are still smoking, because post-Nazi Germany, people wanted to go the opposite direction and no longer restrict personal vices or, you know, practices that happen outside of the public eye. So there was almost like an anti-anti-smoking campaign after the fall of Nazi Germany, which might explain why people today are still smoking. All right, I think that wraps it up for Leckerbiesen and, by extension, episode five of The Deal Presents Babylon Berlin. Leslie, it's been wonderful. This episode brought to you by Red Wine, almost certainly. Please rate and review us on whatever it is people do that, or don't, that's also fine. If you want to tell someone awkwardly at the gym about this podcast, like, that would also be cool, or not. But you never know. I'd say talk about us in the produce aisle.